Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Let me begin this evening by saying, I know, I know, you don't have to say it. I am going to sound like a broken record tonight. I am going to sound like a recording that's stuck on repeat. Because yet again this evening, as we look into Isaiah chapter 28, we're going to see the concentration that Isaiah places on Israel on the northern tribes, on the southern tribes. This particular prophecy occurs after the section that we have gone through for the last several weeks, where Isaiah prophesies against the various Gentile nations, culminating in God judging the whole world for the way that they have shed blood, followed then by Satan being cast aside. Leviathan is the name that was used last week. Followed by this glorious future for Israel and God's consistency in promising that even though he's going to scatter Israel, he is going to regather Israel. Now to my way of thinking, once you see God actually come through with the promises he has made to Israel and Judah that he is going to scatter them. And then you see that historically. You see that that actually did occur. That is proof, that is evidence that the whole rest of the prophecy is also going to come true. God is going to also regather them, reestablish them, take them back into their own land. David's greater son is going to sit on David's throne from Jerusalem, and that is all based on the reality that God did, in fact, scatter Israel. So time-wise, as we get into chapter 28, Isaiah is going to return to the moment in which he is living, and he can see on the horizon that the Assyrians are going to come and conquer the northern tribes. So this is a prophecy against, specifically, Ephraim. Ephraim is a nickname for the ten northern tribes. They are sometimes called Mount Ephraim, but Ephraim was the chief tribe of the northern ten tribes. And so they are all called by that nickname, Ephraim. Samaria is the capital of the northern tribes, the northern kingdom. So sometimes they are referred to as Samaria and sometimes as the house of Israel. The same way that the southern kingdom is referred to sometimes by Jerusalem, sometimes as the southern kingdom. This prophecy is against Ephraim. It's against the northern tribes holding them guilty. One of the things that I've been talking about on Sundays, one of the more remarkable aspects of the absolute sovereignty of God and his revelation of himself, is that he not only tells us what has happened and what is going to happen, but he tells us why. He gives us insight. That's part of his wisdom, part of his knowledge and understanding, is that he not only says what is going to occur, but he tells us why it's going to occur because of the depth of his understanding of human beings and his relationship with them. Chapter 28 of Isaiah is one of those chapters where he's going to say what is going to happen and why it's going to happen. The Assyrian captivity is coming. It's right on the horizon Isaiah is warning the people that it's going to happen. And yet those who sit in authority in Israel, the northern kingdom, make fun of him and refuse to listen to him. And yet it's going to happen anyway. Yet we know historically 
that Assyria did come down on the northern tribes, take them into captivity, and they have not returned to their promised homeland ever since then. But then the second part of this chapter, Isaiah turns his attention from the northern tribes to the southern tribes and holds them even more guilty than the northern tribes because they should have been able to see what God did to their brethren as a result of the northern tribes chasing after other gods, being involved in idol worship, turning their back on God, and instead of expecting God to protect them and counting on his protection of them, they started making deals with other nations. And so God held them guilty, throws them into captivity, and the southern kingdom should have seen that and recognized that they should turn from their own erring ways and worship God because he was worthy of worship. They also didn't do that. And so as a consequence, even Ezekiel, when he describes them as two erring sisters, Ahola and Aholabah, says that the southern kingdom was more guilty than the northern kingdom because they got to see the northern kingdom punished and yet they didn't turn from their following after idols. So that's kind of the whole of what we're going to look at in chapter 28. First, the prediction, the call to return and trust God to the northern tribes, and the threat that they are about to fall under the yoke of Assyria. And then Isaiah turns his attention to the southern tribes, who should have been able to see what happened to the northern tribes, and they should have then turned back to their God, to their maker, and instead they also mock Isaiah and don't believe what he's saying. Now the reason that both the northern and the southern tribes mock Isaiah, though he's right, though he's completely right, the reason that they mock him is because they are so full of their own self-sufficiency. They are convinced that what they think is true is actually true, that what they believe is what is true, and rather than adjust their thinking according to what God has said, they stand on those things that they believe anyway, and on the deals and the covenants that they have made rather than the covenant that God has made. And so as a consequence, they're going to fall because God is proving to them that his word alone, his covenants alone, are the only ones that stand. And any deals that human beings make cannot stand against the covenant of an almighty God. So Isaiah chapter 28. Immediately, Isaiah refers to the leaders of the northern tribes as the proud crown. The kings, the leaders in the north are not only the leaders, but they are proud in their leadership. But then by way of contrast, they are also called drunkards. You're going to see this language a lot in this chapter, that they are drunk, the idea being that they have lost their sensibility. They have lost the natural understanding that intelligent people would have. Intelligent people would be able to recognize the hand of God and then respond appropriately. But the kings of the north don't respond to God for two reasons. One, they just don't understand and they are so erring in their understanding that God likens them to drunk men. But secondly, because they're proud. And yet again, here's that sin of pride. They are so confident in their own deals, in their own covenants, in taking care of themselves, that they have become prideful against God. God says they are drunk. They're like foolish, slobbering, falling down men who just don't have any natural understanding of what's really happening. Woe to you, proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Now we got half a sentence in, but I'm already going to say, take a look at verse 5 of the same chapter. 
Isaiah says, in that day, we know from the repetition of that phrase that Isaiah is saying, in the time to come, in the last days, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown. So ultimately, God is going to be the ruler of Israel and in Israel, and he is going to be a beautiful and a just and a righteous and a glorious ruler. But the rulers currently in Ephraim are a proud crown. And so the contrast stands between the proud crown and the beautiful crown. Woe to the proud crown of drunkards of Ephraim and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty. Once upon a time, this was a land of milk and honey. Once upon a time, they were a people of tremendous wealth and prosperity because God was blessing them. God was protecting them from their enemies, even protecting them from the wild animals. At one time, this was a glorious land. But now it was a fading flower, fading from its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley. You could read right past that and not know what it means, but Samaria is placed right at the head of one of the most fertile valleys in the upper northern area. So he is speaking directly to Samaria where the proud crown would reside. Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are drunk, those who are overcome with wine. I grew up playing in nightclubs. I started playing in nightclubs when I was 15. Don't let that out because it was completely illegal. And I started playing at a very young age for grown-up adults who would show up around 9 o'clock in the evening and get sloshed by midnight and then have to be driven out into the streets by 1 o'clock. And never in all the time that I played clubs and watched people drink, never once did I see anybody improve based on the amount of alcohol they consumed. Instead, the more alcohol, the worse they got and the stupider they got. Oh, I have stories, but we won't go into it right now. God here is saying that they are drunken and that they're like those who are overcome with wine. And people who are overcome with wine become stupid. Verse 2, behold, the Lord has a strong and a mighty representative. The NASB says a strong and a mighty agent. He's speaking here of the armies of Assyria. The armies of Assyria are both strong and mighty, but the Lord is going to use them in order to punish Israel. Therefore, they are working on behalf of God, even though they don't know that they're working on behalf of God. But the Lord has this strong, mighty agent who is going to attack Israel like a storm of hail, like a tempest of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. And he, God, cast it down to the earth with his hand. So if you ask the question, who was responsible for the attack of Assyria on Israel? The answer could be, well, the Assyrian king who was overwhelmed with his own power and expanding his own kingdom. And so he wanted to go and take the land that belonged to Israel, just like he took all the surrounding area in the Middle East. But the answer is also, God caused Assyria to conquer Israel because without God's permission, without God's say-so, they could have made no inroads into Israel. How do I know that? How can I prove that? Because the armies of Assyria got to within a couple miles of the border of Jerusalem and God did not allow the armies to conquer Jerusalem. You may remember the story that in one night he sent an angel 
that slew the armies so that they would not invade Judah. So God was perfectly capable of driving the Assyrian army away from Israel, but instead, this time, he allowed them to conquer. He allowed them to come in like a storm of hail, like a tempest of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, and then God takes credit for it. The Lord, he cast it down to the earth with his hand. He's the one who by his almighty hand allowed the destruction of Israel, caused the destruction of Israel, and he used Assyria as the agency through which he caused the punishment of Israel. Isaiah, at that moment, is describing a very, very sovereign God. He's describing a God who could stop them or who would allow them all for the purpose of ultimately dealing with his people. The proud crown, says verse 3, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, now we already know that's Samaria, which is the capital that sits at the head of the fertile valley, is the fading flower of its once glorious beauty, and Samaria will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer. Everybody understand what that means? Fortunately, Isaiah tells us what it means, which someone sees, and as soon as it is in his hand, he swallows it. In other words, the moment that Samaria is seen by Assyria, they're not going to wait. They're going to conquer it. They're going to eat it up. They're going to plow through it. Verse 5. In that day, so now we've jumped forward to God's restoration of Israel. Even though he's going to defeat Israel at this moment, he's going to punish Israel at this moment. Nevertheless, Isaiah continues to hold out hope for the restoration and redemption of Israel. Because in that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem, a glorious crown to the remnant of his people. So these immediate people who are living in the time of Isaiah, those people who are driven out of Israel and taken into captivity in Assyria, the fact that that has happened and the fact that they have been scattered and out of their land ever since, it's been a couple thousand years now, and they still have not returned to their land. And yet, Isaiah makes sure that you know that the fact that that has happened in human history does not negate the promises of God made to Israel about their glorious future. The glorious future promise is still solid, is still genuine. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown, and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. I also find it very, very significant that the folks who believe that the church has replaced Israel and that God is done with Israel utterly and completely because of their failure to follow the law of God and because they did chase after other gods, people say, well, then God has divorced Israel and that's just the end of the topic. And wherever they see promises, future promises for Israel, they say, well, those promises now belong to the church. All the bad stuff that the Old Testament says about Israel, that's all Israel. That's all national Israel. But all the good stuff and all the future restoration and all the promises of God, that's the church. Except that here Isaiah says that when God deals with the remnant and wears his glorious diadem as a king over his remnant, he refers to them, the very people who he cast off, the very people who he scattered, the very people who have rebelled against him, haven't followed his law, have chased after other gods, he still refers to them as his people. Nothing about the fact that they are his people changed. They're his people in rebellion. They're his people and they're scattered. They're his people because he has made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those promises have to come true in that people group who God still refers to as his people.
people. Shall we apply that for a moment? Because you know, if you're honest with yourself, that at some point in your Christian walk, you have rebelled against God. You know that in the time period since you called yourself Christian, since you were converted, since you received the Holy Spirit, you know that you have grieved that spirit. And you know that you have chased after your flesh. And you know that you have gone your own way. Because you're still sinful, rebellious, and egocentric in your flesh. And when that has happened, have you ever caught yourself and thought, I am such a rebel, how could God possibly love a person like me? How could he forgive somebody like me? Here he's done all that for me, killed his son for me, has promised me all this redemption, and yet I'm still rebelling against him. How could God love somebody like me? The answer is right here in this verse, which is you're still his people. You're still his child. You're still his. And therefore, he won't lose you despite you. Now, that is very good New Testament solid theology where we would say that's right. Jesus said that we're in his hand and he and we are in the Father's hand and no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand because the Father is more powerful than everybody. So, no matter what, we cannot be plucked out of the hand of God or the hand of Christ because they are the superior power in the universe. That's really good to know, but the same way that that theology applies to us as the church, Isaiah just applied it right here to Israel because they are his people. And because they are his people, even the fact that they are the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, still God is going to keep a remnant of future Israel and establish a kingdom that has a glorious crown and a glorious diadem and a beautiful crown to the remnant of his people because they are his people. A spirit of justice is that glorious crown, a spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment. One of the chief jobs of a king in Israel was to act as judge between people. The example that we're given of Solomon's great wisdom is how he doled out appropriate judgment for the two women who were arguing over one baby. And so that idea of sitting in judgment and Judging correctly, judging by God's standards, judging by the law of God, that's the standard that we saw time and time again in the wisdom literature as we read through it. Solomon had an awful lot to say about not taking bribes and judging righteous judgment. When God himself becomes the king, he is going to judge righteously for those who come to him for judgment. Because he has and is the very spirit of genuine justice. And not only that, but he is the strength of those who repel the onslaught at the gate. So if there is ever enemies at the gate, the armies of Israel are going to still remain in safety because their king is the one who is going to empower them to repel any onslaught that comes against them. So perfect justice, perfect righteousness, perfect strength, that's what they are promised someday. But at the moment, verse 7, those drunken, proud leaders of Israel are those who reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. And the priest and the prophet reel, stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet, those are very specific offices. The priest is the one who sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. The prophet is the one who hears from God and takes it to the people. So both lines of communication with God, both toward God and from God, both lines of communication are drunken, according to God, reeling, falling over, falling down, incapable of doing their jobs because they don't have the proper mindset. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. 
they reel, which means to wave back and forth while they're trying to walk. They reel while they're having visions. And they totter when they're rendering judgment. So whether they're hearing from God, whether they're judging on behalf of God, no matter what they're doing, they are in a state of confusion because of their level of self-reliance. And because they believe that the deals and the covenants that they have made with the foreign nations, the deals and the covenants that they have made with foreign gods and idols, are all a sign of their complete lack of genuine understanding of who God is and what God's like. And therefore, God says, you're just a bunch of drunks. You're just doing foolish things and you don't understand. The table of a king was usually the place of great banquets. And sitting at the table of a king was a great honor. If you were invited to come to the banquet of a king, that was a tremendous honor. So God describes their tables in verse 8 and says, For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean space. That's what the tables of these kings are like. So God has described the kings of Israel as being utterly and completely guilty. They have perverted justice. They have not defended the poor. They have chased after other gods. They have taken bribes. And so God holds them completely guilty and describes them as completely corrupt and drunk and eating their own vomit. I mean, that's the kind of language God uses to say how detestable and corrupt these kings have become. And how big a contrast is that with the idea of God saying, I'm going to be your beautiful crown. I'm going to execute proper justice. I'm going to listen to the poor and the downtrodden. I'm going to protect the people if the enemies attack. God is going to be the righteous, the just, the correct king. And all the human kings are completely corrupt. You don't get much more corrupt than dining at a table of vomit. Have I said that phrase enough times now? I just want to drive into your minds how sick that is. Now, starting at verse 9, the kings of the north, having heard this prophecy, don't understand it and begin to mock Isaiah. And the way that they mock him is to say, your description of us cannot be accurate because after all, God speaks to us, God speaks through us, and he wouldn't do that to a mere babe without understanding. So therefore, we must be grown-ups. We must be appropriate in our leadership. They say, verse 9, to whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? So in other words, since we are the prophets and the priests, and you've just denounced us, we're arguing that God would not talk to us if it was true what you have described about us. Would he talk to us if we were just weaned from milk? If we were just taken from the breast? In other words, if we were just children without any understanding, God wouldn't be speaking to us. For he says, and this is apparently a mockery of what Isaiah is saying. In other words, they're saying, you're treating us like children. You're treating us like people who have no understanding. Order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. That phraseology is Hebrew phraseology for how you instruct children. In the Hebrew, it's actually a series of just short Hebrew noises, almost. It's a mockery and saying that Isaiah's in-depth prophecy is little more than here a little, there a little, row, row, row your boat, ring around the rosy. Order on order. The King James, I believe, says precept upon precept, line upon line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to these people since they're busy bragging. Now look, we have to be adults. 
we're not babies you don't have to treat us like ring around the rosy we're grown-ups we know what we're doing so Isaiah responds and says okay you think God speaks to you he's about to he indeed is going to speak to you through stammering lips and a foreign tongue he's gonna to bring on you people who are going to defeat you who don't even speak your own language and that's how God is going to speak to you since you're so sure that God would only talk to you because you're grown-ups indeed he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue he who said to them here is rest give rest to the weary and here is repose but they would not listen so Isaiah's indictment against them is God promised you a land of milk and honey and he gave it to you God promised you rest from your enemies and he gave it to you God promised you that he would defend you from the wild animals and he has done that and he has provided ample rain and he has provided ample food and he has provided for you a place where you can rest a place where you can be at repose and you would not listen to him and you would not do what he said to do and you would not follow his law and you would not worship him as God the only God and so he is going to defeat you utterly by people of a language you don't even understand so the word of the Lord to them will be order on order order on order line on line line on line a little here a little there they just mocked Isaiah and said you're treating us as children you're talking to us a little ring around the rosy language like we're children but we're not so Isaiah's response to them is God is going to speak to you by defeating you through a people whose language you don't understand and indeed you are children because when God does that it's going to be the same thing as God talking to you like little children precept upon precept line upon line because you're incapable of understanding because you're a bunch of drunk vomit eaters got it, got it. I like the way Isaiah talks <laughs> Isaiah doesn't play and what is the reason that God is going to do that so that they may go and stumble as they walk backwards and be broken and be snared that means trapped and be taken captive that's the reason that God talks to them like little children that's the reason that God leaves them in their ignorance that's the reason that God does not speak to them the way he speaks to Isaiah so that they will lead the people in an errant way so that they will fall backwards fall into a trap and be taken captive because that is God's intention for them and their own ego and their own deals and their own covenants and agreements with foreign nations and their foreign gods collectively cannot deliver them from the hand of God when the hand of God chooses to punish them should we apply that for a moment we're at a point right now here in America where to say this now almost sounds trite because it's just so obvious that America is not listening to the Word of God is doing everything they can to be contrary to the Word of God is doing everything they can to rebel against the Word of God and the Word of God already tells us that God punishes people who do that and yet America is drunk and they're proud and our leaders are wearing their proud crowns and in their drunken stupidity are continuing to rebel against the God who has a sovereign history of defeating nations who do that just like Israel Israel refused to believe it because they were so full of their own self-confidence and America right now is so full of their own self-confidence that they have learned nothing from the history of God's actions in the world how many nations have risen up in the history of the world and then run contrary to God and then been taken down completely and disappeared to history and yet arrogant America arrogant America make the t-shirt and yet arrogant America 
continues to rebel, we are rightly judged when we're judged. And by the way, the judgment of America is not that he is going someday to give them bad leaders. The bad leaders are already here. We're under the judgment of God right now. Just thought I'd throw that in. Verse 14 starts with the warning to Judah. Now that Judah has seen the way that God has dealt with their brethren in Israel, Isaiah says, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers. So whereas northern tribes, whereas Israel was the drunken proud crown, the southern kingdom is scoffers. The scoffers who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. The same way that he identified Samaria as the capital of the northern tribes. He identifies Jerusalem as the capital of the southern tribes. And he's talking to the leaders in both capitals. You who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with lies. Sound familiar? I won't pontificate. This reference to we've made a covenant with death might mean we have made a covenant with the surrounding nations, the nations that we have already read, Isaiah judging. God is going to judge those nations with whom Judah has already made deals. And so since they are dying nations, dying people, people under judgment, the fact that they have made covenants with those people, God likens it to making a covenant with death. Or in ancient Middle East thinking, death was actually the personification of the king of the underworld. So he may be speaking of that personified lord of the underworld and saying, we've made a deal with death. And with Sheol, with the grave, we've already made a pact. That might also mean we've already come to grips with the fact that we are going to die. We've already made a pact among ourselves that we are going to defend ourselves all the way to death. And therefore, we know that we're going to be able to defeat our enemies because we're not afraid to die. Any of those three interpretations work because in the end, Isaiah says, they're all wrong. The overwhelming scourge, they think, will not reach us when it goes by and affects other nations. It's not going to affect us because we have made falsehood our covenant with death, our pact with Sheol. We have made that falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. In other words, we have hidden ourselves, concealed ourselves by our lies. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed, and he who believes in that stone will not be, the NASB says, will not be disturbed. It can also mean will not be upset, will not be embarrassed. That should sound very, very familiar to you, because that particular prophecy right there is picked up several times in the New Testament. Tom, if you would, look up Romans 9.33. Uh, Leon, if you would, Romans 10.11. Uh, Steve, if you would, 1 Peter 2, 6. How you feeling, Luann? You want to read something? Sure. Sure. Ephesians 2, 20. We're teaching on the book of Ephesians on Sunday morning, so we might as well include that. In each of these phrases, you're going to see a direct reference to that prophecy. That's how important this particular moment of prophecy is. And it's placed in a really interesting place. Isaiah is speaking against the leaders at Jerusalem, the ones who were sitting on David's throne, the ones who, instead of 
trusting God for their deliverance and their continuance are instead making covenants with foreign nations, with foreign gods. They're making deals and pacts, and instead of trusting God, they believe that when the trouble, when the scourge comes, it's not going to affect them because of the deals that they themselves have made. God's response to that is, I have my own king, and I will set up my own king on that very throne, on that very mountain. He is going to rule from Jerusalem, and he's going to rule righteously, and he's going to rule in justice. He is a tested chief cornerstone, and I've already done it. God speaks of it in the past tense, even though it's a future thing. So, once again, I have to say, just for clarity, you can look at all the stuff that is predicted in this, in this chapter. The fall of Jerusalem as they go into Assyria. That actually happened. Actually happened in time and history. The future fall that's going to be predicted here, that is the Babylonian captivity for the southern kingdom, 70 years in Babylon. That actually happened in time and history. That actually occurred. Therefore, the fact that God is going to set up his king, he's going to set up his chief cornerstone in Zion, in Jerusalem, that also has to happen. Based on the fact that this is not just something we take on faith, it's something you take on evidence. The evidence, the proof, the historical reality has already laid the groundwork for us to be able to state emphatically that this is going to happen, that Jesus is going to rule from Jerusalem. He is going to sit on David's throne because he is the chief cornerstone that God himself has established as his king in Zion. That has to happen. And you have the authority of the New Testament authors who are going to pick up this prophecy, as we're going to read now, and say, this still has to happen. So whether you're looking at the Old Testament or you're looking at the New Testament, there's no way around the fact that Jesus is ultimately going to be the king of the earth, not just the king in heaven, and that he is going to rule from Jerusalem, from Zion. And the New Testament agrees. Tom, you're going to read Romans 9.33. If you find any verses around it that you'd also like to read, that's okay too. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, and he who believes in it will not be disturbed or upset or put to shame. Now, when Paul picked that up, he put it into the context of Romans 9. And the question of Romans 9 is, has God abandoned those people whom he foreknew? And in answering the question that God has not done that, God forbid, he brings up that promise. And that promise is to those people who far too much of the church say God is done with. And yet Isaiah says no, Paul says no. Leon, did I give you Romans 10, 11? Mm -hmm. And again, if you find anything around it that you'd like to read too, have at it. Talking about Jesus, God raised him from the dead. Um, for with your heart, man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So as he is encouraging faith in God, he reaches back to what Isaiah wrote and says, it's already been predicted that if you believe in him, you're not going to be disappointed. So put your faith, continue in the faith, in Christ and Christ alone, and trust me, you won't be disappointed. And he's basing that on the scripture. That's a firmly scriptural promise. Steve, I believe you have 1 Peter 2.6. And I'll make you the same offer. If you see anything around there that you'd like to add to it, have at it. I think the context needs to include verse 4 and following. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up 
as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Who is Peter's audience? Who is he writing to? Hebrew Christians, who he refers to as the scattered, the diaspora. That is who his ministry is to. And in talking to them, he reaches back to the promise of Isaiah that one day God is going to reestablish the kingdom that belongs to Israel, and he is going to put Christ on the throne, and whoever has faith in Christ will not be disappointed. The context makes perfect sense for why he would reach back to that promise in Isaiah. That's not only how firm the promise is, but it also confirms the promise and the context of the promise in Isaiah, that even though God is going to punish Israel and Judah, he is going to restore them. He is going to be their glorious crown. He is going to place his king in Zion. And the New Testament authors, especially Peter writing to Hebrews, says that's still going to happen. And finally, Luann, I believe you've got Ephesians 2.20. Yeah, 19 and 20. 19 and 20. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. That language of chief cornerstone, Christ himself is the chief cornerstone on which everything else is built. He's the foundation that everything else is built on within the church. That idea reaches all the way back to Isaiah 28. So now you see how the New Testament authors utilized this particular prophecy in order to establish that Isaiah was speaking of Christ and that God is going to place Christ on a throne in Zion, and that promise is still a valid promise, future to them, still to come. Back to Isaiah 28 so we can wrap up. After saying, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am laying in Zion. Laying, that's right, laying. Who, who needs the G? <sighs> I've become very Southern suddenly. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed, and he who believes will not be disturbed, will not be disappointed. And I will make justice, because now he's saying Christ is the cornerstone, he's the foundation stone, and then I am going to build up a building on it, and the building that I build on it is going to require a measuring line and a level. Just like every building, you need to be able to measure it, and you need to be able to keep it level so it doesn't topple over. The elements that God is going to use are justice as a measuring line and righteousness as the level. So God is going to build up a house, very much like what Steve read for us. He is going to build up a house based on the cornerstone of Christ. And as he builds it, it's going to be built in righteousness. And as he builds it, it's going to be built in justice. Those are the tools he's going to use to establish his house. Now remember a moment ago, he said that the children of Israel were hiding behind their lies. So the second half of verse 17 says, Then hail shall sweep away their refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the secret place. Because of the hail and the waters, all of the private, dark lies of Israel are going to be uncovered and washed away. And your covenant with death shall be canceled, and your pact with Sheol shall not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, remember they said, when the scourge passes through, it's not going to get us because of the deal that we've made with death in the grave. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, 
then you will become its trampling place. It's going to trample you down. You're trusting in things that aren't God. And so for that reason, God is going to allow Babylon to come trampling into your grounds, into your area, so much so that they're going to destroy the temple, destroy the city walls, and trample you down because you didn't think the overwhelming scourge was going to hurt you. Therefore, it's going to hurt you bad because you trusted in the wrong thing. As often as that scourge passes through, it will seize you. It will take you. And for morning after morning, it will pass through any time during the day or the night. In other words, you're not going to have any ability to defend yourself against them. And it will be sheer terror to understand what it means. Then verse 20 is kind of funny. It's just a Hebraism to say nothing you try to do is going to be adequate. The bed is too short on which to stretch out. In other words, if you're seven foot tall and you're sleeping in a bed that's six feet long, you're never going to be able to get comfortable on that bed. That's the idea. The bed is too short to stretch out on and the blanket's too small to wrap yourself in. There's no way to cover yourself. There's no way to find comfort. There's no way to rest in peace. I'm going to make sure that your situation is unable to protect you. It's going to be like a terror to you. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim, and he will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon. If you're not familiar with those references, those are right outside of Jerusalem. And in fact, that's the area where King David fought off the incursion of uh, the Philistines. And so as God was a protection to Israel in that day, this time he's going to come as a terror to them and come right up to Jerusalem, up to Perizim, up to Gibeon to do his task, his unusual task. That means his unique task that he's going to do and to work his work, his extraordinary work. His extraordinary work is to destroy the cities, the towns, the people who he made all these covenant promises to. It is an extraordinary work. And now, says verse 2, and now do not carry on like scoffers. This is now Isaiah speaking. He's saying, now that you know this, now that you know that this is what God has planned for you, don't continue scoffing at the prophecy because it is going to happen. Lest your fetters, the things that bind you, become even stronger. For I have heard from the Lord of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. And now the next section is sort of an interesting little parable that he teaches. And the essence of it is in the harvest, in the various different kinds of grain, you don't treat every single kind of grain exactly the same, even though the end result is the same. The end result is getting food. But you know that you treat dill and cumin differently than you treat wheat or any of the grains that you're going to make into bread. You're going to harvest them differently. On one, you're going to use a cart. But on the more tender plants, you wouldn't take a cart wheel into that area because it would crush them and destroy them. And you understand, you know the differences when you're doing your harvest. Therefore, God knows the difference when he's doing his harvest. And the way that he treats Israel is going to be different than the way that he treats you. He's going to use Assyria to punish Israel. He's going to use Babylon to punish Jerusalem and the southern kingdom. But it's the same God who knows the same end result, which is he's going to punish his people. And if you're smart enough to know the difference in how you harvest, God is smart enough to know the difference in how he harvests. Okay, now we'll read it, starting at verse 25, 24. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? In other words, no, there's a series of events. First he plows, then he plants, then he waters, then he harvests, then he grinds out the grain, then he makes the food. There's a series. If he's just continually planting seed, then he's not doing any of the rest of the stuff. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? Does he continually turn and harrow the ground? 
Does he not level its surface and sow dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat in rows, barley in its place and rye within its area? For his God instructs him and teaches him the proper way to do a harvest. For dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge. You would use a threshing sledge to go get wheat or barley, but you wouldn't do that with a tender plant like dill, nor is the wheel of a cart, the cartwheel, driven over cumin. But dill is beaten out with the rod and cumin with a club. Grain for bread is crushed. That's why they would have the giant millstones that they would use to crush the wheat so that they could make bread with it. Indeed, he does not continue to thresh it forever. Eventually, he's got to also crush it. He's also got to make bread out of it. Because the wheel of his cart and his horses would eventually damage it. So he's only going to do that for the period of time where it's appropriate. And he does not thresh it any longer. Once it's been threshed, in fact, part of the threshing process was to leave some of it on the ground. Because you could overthresh your field. Okay, so what's the point that Isaiah is making? He's making the point that even men know how to harvest various different plants various different ways, and they don't do any one part of it continually. There's a process leading to an end, and that is the same way that God is working. Even though he is going to thresh them, and even though he's going to thresh them in different ways using Assyria and using Babylon... He's not going to thresh them forever. Eventually, he's going to move on to the next thing that he has determined for them. And the next thing that he's going to determine for them is their years of captivity, and then ultimately bringing them back to their own land, and then giving them the glorious future that he's continually talking about, and then setting the chief cornerstone in Zion so that they do have a king sitting on David's throne. So this is actually a promise of the restoration of Israel after the punishment of Israel. So even in the midst of their punishment, if they pay attention, if they really listen, which is what Isaiah said, really listen to me, pay attention to my words. If they listen, he is just reestablishing yet again that God is not done with them because they are his people and he's not going to thresh them forever. He is eventually going to bring them to the fruition that he has already promised them. So it is a promise of endure for the time because there's a glorious future coming. Verse 29, this also comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made his counsel wonderful, who has made his wisdom great or glorious or full of worship. If we conclude that God has divorced Israel utterly and completely for their rebellion, If we conclude that God is done with Israel and the promises that he has made for them of a glorious future don't belong to them anymore, but now belong to the church or to some other entity, but certainly don't belong to Israel. If we say that, then there's really no astounding amazement to the glory and the grace of God, to the revelation of God. Instead, God is doing exactly what any human being would do. Any human being would say, well, you've rejected me and you've acted against me, and so I'm done with you. But his conclusion, after saying God isn't going to treat you this way forever, is to conclude with this great doxology toward God, where he says that it all comes from the Lord of hosts, this message of not threshing you completely, utterly, continually but one day reestablishing you. That comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made his own thoughts, His own counsel, the one who does everything after the counsel of his own will. Didn't we just read that on Sunday out of Ephesians? The one who does everything after the counsel of his own will, that will is wonderful. It's amazing. It's astounding. Only if you understand that God is making 
wonderful promises of a future to an erring rebellious people who also happen to be his people who cannot lose their nature and character as being the people of God only then can you say wow that's that's like wonderful it's like amazing when you think about you when you think about your own rebellion when you think about your own sinfulness and your own fleshliness and you realize that God will not lose you because you belong to him, because you are his possession, because he has placed his spirit in you, because his son has paid the price for your sin debt and has become your ransom. When you muse on that for any length of time, you have to conclude, wow, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, Isaiah says the same thing about Israel, that when you understand the plan of God for Israel, His counsel is wonderful, and the wisdom that it takes to make that plan is just beyond comprehension. It's glorious wisdom. It's the wisdom that no human being would ever concoct. But because of a good and a gracious God who is revealing himself to be both a good and a gracious God, He does the things that only he can do that no human being would ever come up with because he does these things according to the good counsel and the kind intention of his own will, his own desire, whatever he's pleased to do. And no matter how many people on the planet object to it or don't like it or don't understand it, he's going to do it anyway because he said so. You got it? Got it. All right, then. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.